Welcome to a new episode of Full Stack Cast. In this podcast, we're going to take a closer look at the humans behind Full Stack Fest, our ever-growing roster of amazing speakers. Their talks inspire us by widening our perspective and deepening our knowledge. But behind each one's well-known technical expertise, there is an often lesser-known, well-rounded human with a wide range of interests and a unique life path. Fullstack Fest is an inspiring conference about software. It's happening in the first week of September in Barcelona, and it's organized by Codegram, who also produces podcast. I'm your host, Chus, and today's guest is Paul Frazee. Paul is a longtime distributed systems enthusiast, and his love for the open web led him to build Beaker Browser. Cool. So, uh, well, you have to forgive me. It's a little bit early, and I, I'm a little bit like waking up. <laughs> uh, no worries. <laughs> what time is it? Uh, 8 a.m. Oh, yeah. That's very early to do a podcast. <laughs> yeah. My brain doesn't quite work yet. <laughs> anyway, so um, welcome to the podcast. And we haven't met uh, yet in person, but I hope we'll meet in September uh, at the conference. And yeah, we, uh, we did meet your colleague, Tara Vansil. Uh, she was speaking at last year's Fullstack Fest. Mm-hmm. And it was quite enlightening for me, um, even though I had already read about uh, the Beaker browser and peer-to-peer web and all this stuff, seeing it kind of like presented to the audience. Because, you know, the audience can be a little bit skeptical sometimes of the peer-to-peer web. It's something that people still think it's quite new or maybe, you know, can it even work? Mm-hmm. Is it even possible? Mm-hmm. So I thought it would be interesting to to talk to you and and see a little bit more about that because I'm sure a lot of people are, are wondering how they can use it, how they, they can use the peer-to-peer web and most importantly, how it can change the world in a way. Um, so I yeah. think that we can start talking a little bit about how peer-to-peer works just as an introduction because, you know, it's been a while since uh, people have heard this word outside of the context of BitTorrent. So maybe people don't really mm-hmm. know yet. Yeah. Well, and actually BitTorrent is a good thing to think about because the technology that we are working with takes a lot of cues from BitTorrent. Uh, a lot of the same ideas of, you know, really BitTorrent is a way to do hosting of um, any kind of data in a distributed way where lots of people can get together and help keep a data set online. Um, so it's almost like, you know, they're all acting like one.com sort of collectively together. Um, and we just applied those exact same ideas, but improved on the technology a little bit, um, made it possible for you to make changes to the data that's inside of the, uh, inside of the data set. And, um, and then, uh, really importantly, stuck it in a browser hmm. so that rather than just using it to share files, we can go all the way to sharing entire websites. And then after that, building applications on top of it. And, the way that I generally introduce this to people is, well, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could have the web, but just talk directly to each other instead of having to go through um, these services like Facebook. The reason that that kind of first got me interested is that it's kind of like the free software movement with like Linux and stuff like that. I want to have an open system that's not this walled garden that's owned by somebody else. I want to be able to touch that code and take my data from one application to another and and you know i'm a programmer i want to be able to hack on this stuff Hmm. so having it all locked up at facebook it it seems like a total waste because this is the coolest social system that i think you could ever have this giant global technological system a big network of people who all know how to code why aren't we letting everybody get into that source code and start making their own stuff 
So that's the part of, of all this that gets me really excited is that idea that more people can be contributing and we can be having kind of fun remixing and, and modifying these spaces and then also making them respond better to the problems when they come up. Yeah, I, I think it reminds me a little bit of the early days of the web where that's how it felt at least, you know, like you can just host whatever website you want and now it feels completely different. It feels like there's companies that let you do things in, you know, in, in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Some of the questions that people might have are not too dissimilar to the ones that people had at the beginning. Like, oh, if, ever, if anyone can write a website, then wouldn't it be chaos? Like, wow, everyone will write their own thing and it will be crazy. Yeah. It's exactly how the web was <laughs> intended to be, just like now. Yeah, it has changed. I mean, the early web was weird um, and a little bit crummy, but awesome. <laughs> Um, Lots of marquee and yeah, with the and blink tags and everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I mean, like that was fun, um, and it made sense what happened. You know, like eventually people wanted to get things done, wanted to be able to connect with each other, and it was great what happened because it meant that we were able to start connecting with people and and have things like Twitter feeds, which I love Twitter. I use it all the time. Um, things like Reddit, where you can get all this um, kind of amazing aggregation of content. These are all good things. Um, but to make it work, we had to sort of put the whole system on rails um, and really limit how uh, much creativity individual people could express. Yeah. So the first thing that I think we got to do is bring back a little bit of the, the weirdness and be totally cool mm -hmm. with that, you know. We're going to have people making websites again. And, you know, the, the kind of the first interesting thing that, peer-to-peer -peer lets you do is you can make websites without setting up a server. Uh, you could just press a button and boom, you got a new website. You just start writing your HTML and CSS. Um, so that's great. It just totally takes the friction out of it. And you don't have to be really tech savvy. And man, if you're a new programmer and you sit down and you want to make a website, like, okay, you got to learn HTML and CSS. And by the way, you ever hear of Linux? So here's Bash and here's how to set up your Docker. And right, <laughs> yeah. like you got to do some ops. It's crazy. So um, this lets you just kind of cut out that whole server administration, the whole operation side of things. And just be like, no, no, no. Just press the button inside your browser. You got a new website. Great, right? Straight to your HTML and CSS. I guess what a lot of people might be wondering is how how does this work? Like, is it, is it just magic? Like, you know, why don't we have to learn like Kubernetes and Docker and, and all this stuff? Why don't we need AWS? Like, how can you just uh, work around all of that? It looks like magic, right? Yeah, well, so we took the part, which is just the front end, okay? So just the HTML and mm -hmm. the CSS, just the files that end up coming down to your computer. And we took that away from the server. Right. So like all that back end stuff that you use Kubernetes for, you know, usually you need like Nginx or Apache, these pieces of software that run mm. the server for you. And then you'll set up a database and you'll run application code up in the cloud. So we basically started things out by saying, OK, drop all that, drop all that stuff that you normally run inside the server. We're just going to focus on having all the files that have the HTML and the JavaScript and the CSS. Mm -hmm. And that's the entire website. And that's why we're able to make this so much simpler because we're just taking these static websites and shipping those around. And your home computer can do that. And then you use the peer-to-peer -peer network to just send those files around. So again, it's just like how BitTorrent was, but now we've attached a browser on top of it. 
That's quite good, and actually, kind of connects nicely with the uh, with the recent trends about uh, single page applications and stuff. Right, you just need to scale the backend and then send the files around. It's like a, a CDN by default with everything, right? Yeah, you could kind of think of the peer to peer network as a giant global CDN. That's really cool. Uh, of course, that that brings the question of I've seen in your blog that you address this issue about availability mm. in the sense of distributed systems. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, it'll take a while for the technology to get humming, you know, it's all pretty new, but once things are working really well, there's um, what will hopefully happen is that as long as there's somebody on the network that has a copy of the site, they can keep the thing online. So it's got a redundancy factor, which is um, pretty important if, uh, you know, a catastrophe happens, it would be really great if you would be able to find important information without having to connect to the global internet. Yeah. Definitely. Actually, some people are a bit skeptical about, oh, well, if you have servers, then it's kind of all the same. But if you just act as a server or have someone act as a server, I assume there's some kind of prevention from tampering so that people can know that your site is still the same as your site, Mm -hmm. even if it's served by someone else. So in the web right now, we ultimately are using IP addresses. Mm -hmm. So like whenever you go to a website, what you're actually doing is you're connecting to a specific computer. If you say, I want to go to twitter.com, you're actually connecting to the Twitter computer. So what we have done is actually changed away from the IP addresses. And instead, what we're saying is connect to a piece of content. And we use cryptography to create a sort of a name for this content that is a public key is what it's called, mm-hmm. as opposed to an IP address. So you're you're sort of asking the network, hey, I'd like to grab a piece of content, not talk to a specific computer. Mm-hmm. So it's con- content addressed. That's what, what it means, right? Yeah, the, you can you could use content hashes or you could use public keys for people who are familiar with the stuff. We use public keys. Mm-hmm. And it, what this just means is that you, you're saying to the network, give me the content that uh, you know is attached to this key. Um, don't tell me to talk to this particular computer. And as a result, it kind of doesn't matter which computers you talk to because we can verify the content matches that key. And as a result, whenever you're running, uh, if you do use something in the cloud to keep your stuff online for you, so like let's say you make a website on your computer, you've got this public key that's the address of it, and then you say to some service in the cloud, hey, I'm going to turn my computer off. Could you just keep this online for me? It'll rehost that content for you and other people don't even have to know about that cloud service because at the end of the day, all they're thinking about is, okay, well, is the address right? Great. Then I don't care who serves it to me because the information is self-verifying. In that sense, I think it's extremely different from a server. A server could literally do anything, modify any part of the content for any client. So yeah, like whenever you whenever you look at my Twitter account, you're actually trusting Twitter to faithfully represent what I've posted. Now, most of the time that works out pretty well. But it would be even better if you didn't have to trust Twitter. You could just be like, no, I know that's right. Twitter couldn't mess with it even if they wanted to. Yeah. Okay. I guess that addresses that. Honestly, like right now we don't have anything like that except the peer-to-peer web. So I think it's already a really good selling point. What I wonder as well, if there's a step between, you know, hosting a bunch of websites or your blog and hosting Twitter or, you know, a complex social network, you know, for example, a custom timeline for each client. Yes, this is an interesting question because basically what the timeline of our project has been for a while has been, okay, we got Beaker or the browser running. We got these peer-to-peer websites going and we've been working with that for a little bit. And then it was like, okay, great, that works. What about a Twitter or a Facebook? How do you go to that next step? Um, And that's basically been what I've been working on for uh, at least a year now. And we have ultimately been looking at 
something that's almost sort of like a souped up version of RSS. Mm-hmm. I don't know if folks are remember RSS, but it was like a way to publish your blog posts. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this was like before Twitter. It was um, people would have their own blogs and they would put this XML file out there. that was like, okay, here are the list of the posts I've published. And then you would have this RSS reader. It was almost originally, it was kind of connected to email. And so you'd get these in your inbox. Hey, a new post has been on Paul's website, right? Mm-hmm. And it was a decentralized system. Um, it was just a way to sort of subscribe to the websites that you're interested in. The exact same premise works totally great here. You put out files that are like status updates, and these are just JSON files. Mm-hmm. And then um, if people are interested in what you're publishing, you they can subscribe and sync these files. And when the new file shows up inside that file, it'll just be like a, a Twitter post like normal, but instead it's just off of my peer-to-peer website. So you can subscribe to lots of these different peer-to-peer websites and they'll aggregate down into your personal computer and that's how the feed gets made that that's genius yeah yeah it, it turns out it works like almost exactly like twitter does where you could do comments and votes and you know like upvotes up and likes and things like that there's a whole lot of applications you can build that way and so we we threw together this little twitter clone called fritter mm-hmm. just to see if it could work and it did but we were limited by some of the tools we we had we the the browser doesn't come with a lot of good database tools. Hmm. Um, and so it was slow and uh, it, it had some problems where the database could get corrupted on you because of some bugs and, and beaker and stuff like that. So I had to kind of step back and go like, okay, the, the, uh, the core idea works, but now I need to get the tools uh, working really well. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've been sort of heads down on for the past four months or so. And I think maybe in the next two months, we'll be able to like come back out again and be like, okay, here is a good Twitter clone. Here's one that you could actually use. I mean, the, the idea is solid, definitely. I, ju- I just wonder, so the content, if, if you think of the people's content as a wall of posts, you know, just JSON files, it makes sense, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the sense that they're immutable or just changeable by their by their own user. And then you just download their thing, right? Yeah. What about like likes and comments? Uh, where do they live? Like if I comment on your post, does it live in my kind of um, world? So every person will have their own website, right? Mm-hmm. The way it'll work is whenever you first use Beaker, it'll just go ahead and mint a website for you. And that's your personal website. Mm-hmm. That's the one that you use to represent yourself. So if you go to somebody's um, tweet or whatever we want to call it, their post, and you want to make a comment, you write your comment and you publish that comment just like uh, anything else. So you just write that file on your computer mm-hmm. onto your personal website. Now, the model will be very social in the sense that if I don't follow you, then I won't see it. Mm-hmm. So that means that what we'll end up doing is um, having to sort of have each person build this network of people that they follow and that determines what content they see. Mm-hmm. And so it's an interesting change in how you expect things. Cause like in Twitter, if anybody replies to you, you see the tweet, right? Yeah. Uh, but not, that's not necessarily the case here. Now we can do things where you like sort of crawl out multiple hops. So like I could see friends of friends replies and my computer will just automatically go out and be like, okay, you follow Bob. How, who does Bob follow? Let's pull down his replies too. So that if anybody that's friends with Bob, you'll see their replies too. So there's a way to kind of like grow the network out organically, Mm -hmm. but that's, you know, that's just how it's going to work. And I actually think it's an interesting opportunity because one of the problems that we have right now online is randos showing up and saying abusive things to people um, or spreading misinformation. And so what happens now is that instead you're only going to see people that have some kind of connection to you. Yeah. And 
you can go out and find the sources that you want to have in your life. And otherwise, you're not going to be getting hit with what could possibly be a bot because you're working off of this. What It's really a web of trust. Yeah. that's And whoever you, you, you have to have some kind of trust connection to them. That makes a lot of sense. It's a web of trust. Yeah. In a way that enables a whole lot of applications that are on the account of a lot of people, myself included, they are a little bit like failed. Like I, I would mm. say like I use Twitter all the time, but I know that there's a lot of kind of unsurmountable problems with it. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of, there's no way out. It's just the way it is. And, but I think this could actually make Twitter possible, if that makes any sense. Yeah, right, right. I guess there's another side of applications that might not be so feasible or so possible. I'm not sure. But the ones that rely on a single truth that has to be replicated yeah. almost real time to everyone. It's, you know, they're, they're the struggles with the scale. You know, mm -hmm. um, Twitter can't go out there and verify everybody that signs up on their service or they haven't been able to anyway. Um, so you get these bots and it's sometimes they want the bots, you know, too. So. <laughs> anyway, you, you have a lot of noise. And um, when Twitter is in charge of deciding what kind of tweets are allowed, it, it turns into a little bit of a sticky situation. It's like, well, who is Twitter to start telling us what's, hmm. you know, should be out here? Yeah. And if we're going to improve on this, we need to come up with a way to um, moderate without being afraid of the people doing the moderation. And this is a very direct sort of empowering users to, to do that for themselves. So how does that tie in with um, kind of the duality of censorship and data privacy? I understand that data privacy, I, I can see is still a problem, right? Once you someone replicates your content, it's really hard to get it out there, right? Uh, and mm -hmm. to get it off the, the network. Get it off, right, right. It's an interesting challenge. At, at this stage, we're focusing on stuff that's meant to be public to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, we have some ideas about how we're, where we're going to take privacy. Um, and that'll be a combination of you know making sites that are um, only accessible by people you trust. So you, could, you can do things where you, it's sort of like access control where you say, okay, this is on the peer-to-peer -peer network, but only the peers that I want to share this with can access it, mm -hmm. right? So you could start with things like that, and you can use end-to-end -end encryption so that the the file, the data itself, is encrypted, and you protect the keys. After that, you end up in a what's ultimately a social and a legal question, right? Yeah. Um, because there's no magical way to make com other people's computers delete data. You can't <laughs> yeah. do it, and we don't really run into this as much right now. It feels like we don't because you know if Twitter delete something it seems to be gone but the reality is people can cache that just the same yeah so what we have to do is basically put in a thing where we say look that's deleted i deleted that and i think it's important that you respect what i'm asking you to do i'm, I'm asking you to get rid of this information mm -hmm. and after that it becomes a question of what are our legal systems going to say if they find you know information that people have asked to be deleted i'm, I'm thinking maybe because because all content is kind of uh, checked for tampering. Basically, it's it's kind of immutable. You could, if you add the delete uh, flag, mm -hmm. it's impossible to remove the delete flag. So if most of the clients are honest, yeah, um, they will just honor that. So in in a way, only the people who are actually looking for deleted things, mm -hmm. maybe it's not so easy for them to kind of share that uh, or like pretend that it's not deleted. So it might not be a problem. Like again, it's a web of trust. Mm -hmm. So I guess like you know. If everyone's honest, um, if, the, if the clients are honest, most of the people will see the right content, right? Yeah, yeah. And you're going to have to rely on that. Um, 
but it's a challenging question. You know, that's a really hard question that we're just going to have to grapple with as we go. Yeah. But as you say, it's exactly the same problem right now with the web because anyone, I can download a website. Mm -hmm. I mean, the internet archive is literally that, right? It's like, yeah, yeah, right. No. (laughs) So we already have that problem. Yeah. Well, and this is like whenever anybody who does, um, uh, services right now. A lot of programmers know if you accidentally commit a password into your repo, oh, you I've done change that. that I've done that. Yeah, right. Who hasn't? <laughs> yeah, I've done it too. Um, that's time to change that password. That's there's other layers to it. So it's the same thing. You know, it's hard to uh, come to terms with a big change, and I think this technology might fundamentally change how we think of the web, and it might come with its own set of you know new kind of points of view that you need to adopt or like ways to build things. And maybe we haven't uh, wrapped our head around it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that the right to be forgotten might be impossible, that idea might you know, might just be the thing that we need to learn and kind of work around it in some other way. It's hard to predict when a platform is kind of a, at its beginning, right? Yeah. Well, and the thing to remember is that there, you know, there's no um, silver bullet. There's no magical solution to anything. We have to be pretty humble about the fact that there are challenges no matter what. Um, I think we can make things better with this kind of technology, but it's not going to make a perfect world. For me, what concerns me is that um, I'm afraid of a world where a company like Facebook starts to um, apply moderation in such a way that they're giving a a positive impression of everything they do, right? That's the kind of censorship that really worries me is that they start to abuse their their power as the central arbiter over everything to, to, uh, to start to affect people's perceptions and arguably that's already happening with their yes. the algorithms they use right so my concern is that kind of lack of transparency about what's happening or why i'm seeing information and what information i'm not seeing yeah i i that's why i think it's such a good idea to go ahead and decompose things like moderation into user land so that we can have a, a much more accountable and transparent system for figuring out why something shows up or why it doesn't. Yeah, I think I think it's a much better start than giving everything to a corporation that arguably, I mean, as it reaches certain size, it starts to have uh, leverage on governments and on kind of lawmakers, and it just gets downhill from there very quickly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I just, uh, I, I wanted to digress a little bit because we were talking about a social network fritter mm. and you were doing a secure scuttlebot before, right? Yeah. Is that, I'm, I'm never sure. Is that a protocol or also a social network or both? It's, it's both in a way. Um, it's definitely a protocol. We'll start there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's as a protocol, it's almost like Twitter turned into a protocol where, um, rather than having websites like we do with Beaker in Secure Scuttlebutt, you have um, feeds. Everybody has a feed, mm-hmm. and you post these messages to the feed. And, and in a similar way, they're all uh, they use crypto to sort of verify themselves and, and spread out through the network in a d- big distributed way. The way that you then interact with those feeds, it could be through lots of different applications. You know, you could have something that looks exactly like Twitter, or you could have something that seems like SoundCloud or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, YouTube. It's it's a way to send information out and around the network. So, kind of in a in a big sense, it's like all part of the Scuttleverse, mm-hmm. right? But the applications you can switch between all kinds of applications, which again is is the point. We want to have an unwalled garden where anybody can jump in to any one of these applications um, and change the source, make it a little bit more their own, or you know, even change the rules a little bit, depending on what they need. And how? what made you move from Scuttlebot to developing a bigger browser and kind of the other side of applications on top of that? 
Yeah. So Secure Scuttlebutt is an awesome community. It's still rolling. Um, and they, uh, what happened with that was that eventually I got to the point where I thought, you know what I really want to do if I, if I want to solve the, like I said, the walled garden thing is what really gets me going. And so I was thinking, okay, well, if I'm going to do that, I just need to make a browser. You know, uh, if I'm trying to improve the web, that's where I should just go straight to it. And so luckily for me, um, Electron um, is this tool set that had really started to mature about the time that I was thinking this. Hmm. And Electron is sort of a bunch of tools that wrap around um, Chrome and make it possible, basically, in my case, to make a, a Chrome fork mm-hmm. um, as just one person or a, a small team. So that's why Beaker is even possible. So once I decided to do that, I kind of stepped back and thought, okay, what are my technology options here? And I, as much as I love Secure Scuttle, but I needed something that really behaves uh, like the web behaves. I, I wanted to be able to make websites, and Secure Scuttlebutt is is these feeds. It's not uh, it's not really files. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, I decided to switch over to the DAP protocol because the DAP protocol is files based, and that's what made it really easy to make these websites. And so that's why I switched over. So it was not for any lack of love for Secure Scuttlebutt, but just because it fit the need that I needed. So. Are you saying Beaker Browser is made with Electron? It is, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. I I did not expect that. Like, I've been using it, and it just feels, like, really <laughs> uh, slick and really smooth. And I would have never thought, you know, I have this idea that Electron apps are really kind of heavy. And, you know, with Slack and everything, when you have them all, all open, nothing works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you're not wrong. <laughs> no, but, like... You're not wrong. It, it, it feels, when you're using Electron, I think it feels really heavy um, unless you're actually running a browser and then it feels appropriately heavy. And I think that's why I think we've gotten away with that where people aren't liking this. Is, you know. But I'm really glad to hear that it's, that it's snappy for you. We just actually put out a release today, which will hopefully even improve on that um, responsiveness. So um, yeah, it's, it's uh, the Electron team has been fantastic. Um, and I owe so much to those uh, people for, for doing the work that they do. Um, and it just keeps getting better. We just recently managed to get process level sandboxing enabled, which was a big you know, sort of concern for a while. So the security primitives are getting better with it. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm actually really excited about about having chosen to use Electron because it's really paid off. Wow, that's pretty unique. I, I don't think anyone at the Electron team would have ever thought that, you know, they turn a browser into an application and someone would have made a browser out of it. Like... It's such a funny story because <laughs> originally they'd made Electron so they could do Atom. They were trying to make a, a text editor. Yeah. And somehow they ended up making Electron along the way and here we are. Wow, that's that's quite weird. <laughs> that's nice. Yeah. So actually, yeah. on the sen- on the point of making a browser, um, I bet other browser vendors are at least aware of this peer-to-peer web, right? So what what position do you think they mm. take? Oh yeah, I don't think they know what to think yet. You know, um, and I don't blame them. It's it's really early tech, and um, I think in some cases, uh, like I've had conversations with people on Mozilla, um, and they're very interested in it, but they're just not sure if it's going to pan out. And I understand that. I mean, they, all these companies have a, a number of different business interests, and this just isn't on the top of their list. So I think that they're in a sort of a wait and see pattern right now, mm-hmm. um, which is what I would expect. You know, it's kind of up to us to show that, yeah, this really can work. This should be part of the web. So um, 
that's just the phase we're in at this point. I guess they move a little bit slower. I mean, they have a lot to worry about. So yeah, well, that's good for you. I mean, it gives you a lot of a head start and to be kind of the, the leading browser, right? Yeah, yeah. It gives us a little time to mature the, the ideas, which I think is actually a really good thing. I wonder, um, because all that bandwidth that is now saved from a server, it's kind of spread onto everyone onto kind of the users mm -hmm. do you think this is going to be you know because to share a website maybe i want to share a website because i really like it but uh if i want to share like 200 websites i gotta think about my bandwidth a little bit like i also want my own bandwidth for mm -hmm. myself mm -hmm. it, do you think there's a, a kind of a cost model that can be uh, how how do you envision in the future people kind of paying for that yeah that's an interesting question one of the cool things that we started talking about right away was hey isn't it neat that we can distribute these bandwidth costs you know of course we were going to talk about that but in the long run our home devices our home connections they all have limits and uh, these you know my my mobile phone has a limited battery life mm -hmm. um our our personal devices are not meant to be servers And um, so the future of this is that I think we're always going to want to have beefy computers somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. We're always going to want to have a, a server that is able to handle a ton of traffic because that's just what scale requires. Um, the peer-to-peer -peer network can help by distributing the load, but sometimes that's not going to be fast enough. Sometimes you just need to have um, a really good computer. So probably at first, I mean, it, it, what my dream would be that everybody has uh, a server sitting in the corner at home mm -hmm. that like is their cloud, right? How sweet would that be? Yeah. Um, because then you're totally in, you know, complete ownership of, of, of your um, data set and your presence online. Now, the, the trick with that is that nobody has a home server because there's never been a really good uh, reason for the average person to have one. Mm -hmm. So I think what... I'm hoping will happen is that there's going to be a period where we continue to rely on cloud services to keep giving us those big computers that can keep things running. Yeah. But then over time, people will be like, you know, I could just get a home computer and do it all that way. And then when they make that decision, it'll just be a matter of just changing which thing they have configured. Right. Yeah. Because that's the kind of agility the peer to peer system gives. You just say, okay, you know what? No, don't use the cloud server anymore. Use my home server now. And there you go. You're all set. Yeah. I guess it's not really far off. I mean, people are already putting computers in their homes at a at a pretty fast rate with the you know internet of things like in your fridge and everywhere so uh -huh. i'm sure uh -huh. they won't have a problem having all these devices act as servers actually they're always connected and they're always powered so you know why not oh yeah iot is going to be i think actually really strongly connected to this in the long run because if you ask me one of the big limiting factors on iot is that i would you know love to have a light bulb that i can control with my phone but i don't want the light bulb to contact contact some company exactly off in the cloud you know yes <laughs> like, that's insane and i think a lot of people feel that like you don't have to be highly technical to be like that's a little weird yeah so Eventually, what I'm hoping will happen is that technology like this peer-to-peer -peer networks will uh, help sort of um, open the gates to IoT because then you'll be able to have all this stuff running in your home and not having to phone some cloud somewhere. It's just connecting between this mesh of devices you have at home. So that, I think there's a pretty big opportunity there. Yeah, I think I think it's quite unexplored in that sense, like peer-to-peer -peer for, for IoT. Mm -hmm. I guess it's also the completely opposite direction that the industry wants to go and in terms of IoT, because I think they really want to have that, basically a foot in your home. Yeah. If you can control the fridge, you know what's in there, you know when to order from Amazon, 
you know, Alexa is always listening, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's it's interesting, this kind of, you know, opposing trends, right? The kind of open and decentralized web versus the big corporations. That's why I'm wondering, like, do you see at any time any big corporation maybe wanting to step into the decentralized web and, like, at least do their fair part to maybe not look as evil or do you think they will just ignore it for as long as they can no i think that i think they'll ignore it right up until they suddenly really don't ignore it mm-hmm. right they're going to be like nah that's 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 nothing and then all of a sudden they will um embrace it in a big way um and my bet is that simply because i think my personal belief is that that's what is really holding back iot so at some point one of these companies is going to say you know what we can it's time to really make a push on iot I think they haven't done something like this yet because they're playing to their strengths, right? It's um, Google, Amazon. These are the companies that are building these IoT devices. Or, you know, if it's little third-party companies, the cloud is the easiest way to make this work. Um, So they're just kind of playing to the resources that they have. And uh, at some point when the peer-to-peer stuff has really arrived, I think they'll realize that that's an opportunity that they don't have to um, make a take a big leap on, right? It'll just be there for them to start to use, and that's yeah. when they'll make the leap. Yeah, I guess it's smart. And I guarantee, I agree that they they want to solve the trust problem they have. Yeah, yeah, that's another problem. Like you know, letting a corporation get so big, it's something that you know, once you do it, it's really hard to go back and say, no, actually, we don't want Facebook to be so big. Yeah, well, and that's why you have Elizabeth Warren out there having this discussion about breaking up some of these companies because they, they got big and now it's kind of everybody's like, this isn't great. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is a little <laughs> weird. Um, that's what happens. So Yeah, I wish we will learn from this, actually, because this keeps happening, you know? like <laughs> It does keep happening, but, you know, I'm, I, we got to, that's why we just got to push, you know? Every time things get a little bit weird, all right, it's time to push in the other direction. Yeah, that's good. I think that's a really good thing that you're working on this and... Um, yeah, right now in your team, uh, do you have a lot of contributors like kind of on the open source kind of sphere? Yeah. So the beaker itself is mainly me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the protocol team is led by Matthias and he has a small team. And then there's a nonprofit that we coordinate with that um, gives out grants to different developers to, to work on community contributions. Mm-hmm. So all told, I think there's probably somewhere around seven or eight people um, that are all in different groups, you know, in the community contributing actively to, to this technology. I mean, that, I guess that's very specialized work, at least at the beginning. You have to solve the hard problems mm-hmm. first. So I guess then it will be yeah. after it will be time to open to the more wider community. For people to contribute, right? Yeah, once the basics are done, yeah, I think it'll open up even more for sure. I think it's important as well because when you're designing such a kind of different system, having too many voices, it's a bit strange. Sometimes it's good to, mm-hmm. like, you know, go to the hammock and have a bit of a think and then, you know, design the proper thing and then later show people and let people have their say. Yeah, I agree. It's you, you're always kind of asking yourself, like, do I need to like start pulling other people in, or do I need to kind of sit and do this on my own? And I'm just coming out at the tail end of having sat in the hammock for a little bit and done some work on my own. Mm. Um, and now it's time to get back out and get the community involved again. So um, I'm hopefully, like, this is what I was saying. You know, in a couple next couple of months, going to start going public with some of the work I've been doing, and hopefully, we'll be pulling in more of the community again. That's really exciting. You also announced Hyperswarm mm. kind of recently. And I've, I guess this is kind of at a different level, like a little bit more technical. But I wonder if there's mm-hmm. any other applications 
that can be built on that? And if you can explain a little bit what it is about. Okay, so I'm going to nerd out pretty hard on this thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, yeah. So, sorry if I lose anybody on this, but this is a really fun thing. <laughs> so Hyperswarm is a, uh, I'll throw out the technical term and then explain what it is. It's a DHT, um, which is a basically a, a giant uh, distributed uh, table of information. Um, mm-hmm. The way that we use it is to arrange connections between people. And uh, by having one of these things, this service for arranging connections between people, it's like a, like a switchboard on a, in a telephone network, right? Like I'm trying to call somebody and connect me to their, to their home line. Um, in this case, I'm trying to get my mobile phone to talk to somebody's desktop across the world. So this thing is able to sort of operate autonomously um, without any one um, organization necessarily running it, which is good both for you know making sure that there's a, it's ownerless right it's everybody it's public domain in a way um mm-hmm. and it's also good for resilience right if one of the if participants that keeps this thing running goes down then there will be other people keeping it going so there's a lot of benefits to doing it this way one of the really cool things about this is that it does uh, sort of a similar thing to what the whole dat network does with um peer-to-peer websites in that um you start to have keys public keys again um, to identify computers instead of IP addresses. Mm-hmm. So here's you. You asked like, what could you do with that other than improving the DAT network? Now we're using we're mainly working on this to improve the DAT network. Um, but the interesting additional use case is that you can start to run um, services just like web services now off of this network where you identify your service using this pub key um, and. What could possibly happen is we could get to a point where you deploy a service and you deploy it right out of your browser where you just have a tab open and it's announced itself on Hyperswarm saying, hey, I've got this service. You can find me just to connect to this key. Mm-hmm. Um, people can start contacting your computer directly. It'll run the JavaScript in your tab and you've got a little server going. Okay, so that's pretty handy. It's normally you have to get a whole server running, you know, get an IP address and a domain name and something with AWS, but now you could just run it out of your browser. Yeah. But then because of this key address, what you could do is decide, you know what? Okay, great. The service is running, but I'm getting more traffic than I want. And I don't want to have to keep my computer running. You could then just move it up into the cloud or onto a desktop that you have on your home device, you know, a home you know, network that you know will stay online um, and just move the service over and not disrupt its operation at all. Mm-hmm. And so you could kind of start from a, well, it's just on my little laptop. And then like, once you're ready to move it off, you ship it over to somewhere else and then you don't disrupt the operation of it anymore. And I think that's a, you know, this may just be really exciting to nerds, but as a programmer, it's a really nice thought that I'd be able to just ship around my services and not have to think about it anymore. You know, yeah. Started on my device. All right, I'm done with that. I'm, and and so, Matthias calls this uh, progressive deployment, right? You you start on your device and then you progress it up to the more powerful hosting system. Yeah, yeah. It's basically what people, what developers do. They develop locally for a while, then they put it maybe on a staging server. Their colleagues try it, and then finally they deploy. But right. it's a lot more work, right? Way more work, yeah. Because every time yeah. you have to get some kind of configuration involved, be like, all right, now it's at this address, now it's at that address, and it just makes a more flexible system. Yeah. Do you have any kind of project that, aside from the social network that you're building, that you think you want to try this kind of progressive deployment uh, with, just to see if the workflow is kind of 
fits like a developer's needs? Oh man, you know, this is one of those things that if I wasn't working on Beaker, <laughs> I would yeah. be working on this because one of the things that's also happening right now is WebAssembly is um, coming along WASM. Oh yeah. Yeah, and um, I think there's a really interesting opportunity to build a new sort of cloud system built on top of WASM as the container. So like instead of using Docker, you just use WASM. Um, mm. And then um, you could sort of, similar to like how the web platform has APIs built in, you would build into this cloud platform a bunch of APIs, and then um, you would be able to ship these services between you know these different containers. So you're creating like a universal cloud runtime in the same way that the web is a universal client-side runtime. Wow. Right? Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think there you just are other, blew my mind right now. <laughs> I, I think there are other companies that are working on this. Like right now, if I had to put down money, I think Cloudflare is getting into this. So watch what they're doing with service workers. Um, but we'll see. I, I know I'm not the only person that's talking about this right now. So if I wasn't if I wasn't doing Beaker, you can bet that's what I'd be doing. Uh, I think you need to start doing a little bit more recruiting because it can be that you're the only one working on this stuff. <laughs> Well, hopefully what will happen is that other people will start doing that and then maybe I can start to get that system integrated into Beaker because then what you could have is have mm. that same universal runtime work both in the browser and in the cloud. So again, you'd be able to ship these services from your home device to a server and not have to think about it. Yeah. And for an end user, there is a pretty neat use case. Let me throw this like example out. Um, suppose you have an event that you um, want people to RSVP to. That's a really good, simple use case. People would you contact your little service that you run. And so like as an average person, you would go to the web page and be like, all right, start listening for these things. And then people would be able to send the RSVPs to your computer. And then you'd at some point be like, okay, yeah, that's good. I started the service, send it up to my cloud and I'm done, right? You, you don't have to think about it, but you're mm -hmm. able to instantiate entire web services as a layman. Right. It's just a regular user. And it just seems like starting a program on your desktop. That's really cool. I, I, I really hope it's not too far away, especially for kind of the mainstream users. But, you know, seeing how the web has evolved uh, so quickly, actually, and everything has changed so quickly. I, I hope maybe in the next five years, I, I wish it comes a day where people wouldn't trust their social network to a corporation. They wouldn't mm -hmm. trust maybe their banking system, but not their, you know, their sensitive personal data. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, one step at a time, but I, I think it's a, a good bet to make, you know, there's a lot of it, like the web is still going strong. There are uh, even outside of the kind of um, decentralization projects. I think the web platform is making really great advancements every day. And, um, and so I, I think that I'm optimistic no matter what. Um, I think there's a question that our audience might be asking themselves, especially if they're not too familiar with the peer-to-peer -peer web, is why um, did you choose that or, you know, these kind of protocols instead of blockchain? As, you know, everyone's talking about blockchain all the time. I wanted to use it for everything. Yeah. Why doesn't it work for the peer-to-peer -peer web? You know, that's a good question. Um, so I don't personally go in for blockchains right now. Um, I, I have a lot of concern personally about the um, energy usage of proof of work. <laughs> I think yes. it is a really cool algorithm. Don't get me wrong. 
Um, but man, I just can't get behind that. You know, I can't get behind yeah. burning all that electricity. And I know there are people who have arguments as to why that's not that important, but I just, I don't buy it. I think it's, I think it's a questionable approach. So there's that. And it, the performance of it hasn't been that great either, to be honest. I mean, the, the number of transactions that system can run is, is not great. And the other thing is that, um, what I'm trying to solve doesn't really require the blockchain tech. Um, so it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, then I'm just not going to use it. Yeah. I guess it's the other end of the spectrum where you want, you know, a kind of a single source of truth, but it comes at a ridiculous cost yeah. in terms of energy. And like, mm-hmm. I wonder what the, you know, because the industry is, is pushing for blockchain a lot, probably without really knowing it just maybe another buzzword that people used to raise, um, kind of seed rounds, but yeah, everyone's kind of betting on that for absolutely everything. And I hope that doesn't really, uh, that doesn't eclipse the peer-to-peer web, the true <laughs> decentralized web that it should work like without a blockchain. You know, I, I'm glad that it's happening because I'm glad that yeah, I, I don't know what is going to be the right call at the end of the day. And it may turn out that somebody in the blockchain space really nails it. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, who knows? Ethereum is working hard on a proof of stake system. Maybe they'll figure out how to make that work. And everybody, all the haters will have been totally wrong. Who knows? <laughs> Um, so I, I'm, I'm glad that that is happening. I, that's not the bet that I wanted to make. Um, it, it's, it's a change. At least yeah. it's like trying to change your mm-hmm, term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not too concerned that we'll get crowded out by it. I mean, we the the time the period where blockchain hype was really intense was about uh, a year, two years ago, and we did have a little bit of trouble breaking through at that point. But I'm not as concerned about that now. the The hype cycle has died down a lot for blockchains at this yeah. point. So I, I don't feel like we're getting crowded out by that. Yeah, I don't think you will either. I mean, I guess like things like banks and stuff, they're still kind of betting hard on it, but they're out of kind of this problem space anyway, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the payments system, and, and I would love to have a great payment system too. Uh, so, you know, again, I, I do have my fingers crossed that payments can get easier than they are. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's not pivotal to what we need. Cool. So uh, it's been a really great talk uh, and I've learned a lot about peer-to-peer web and i hope our audience kind of gets a different perspective on on what the web could be rather than there's a lot of negativity around where the web is going with, mm-hmm. i think with good reason but mm-hmm. i think this could give like a breath of fresh air i think yeah i sure hope so yeah i'm really looking forward to your talk in september and in meeting you in person as well yeah same cool so i'll see you in full stack fest in september all right sounds great and to our listeners i hope you've all enjoyed this episode If you want to see Paul on stage and many other great speakers, you can go to fullstackfest.com. Until next time and see you all in September.